The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie More than 27 years after the Hillsborough disaster, justice is finally done for the families of the 96 men and women, boys and girls as well, who lost their lives on that awful, awful day. Uh, We start with that story. As I said, 96 people lost their day. Extraordinary. They set out going to an FA Cup semi-final to see their beloved Liverpool and so many of them never came home. Um, major, major development today, the inquests uh, into those deaths. This is the second inquest. Uh, the family have fought for this inquest for so many years. Uh, the jury at that inquest found that uh, Match Commander, Chief Superintendent of South Yorkshire Police, David Duckenfield, was responsible for manslaughter by gross negligence due to a breach of his duty of care. They uh, also found that the 96 people were unlawfully killed. The first inquest had said that it was death by accident, uh, a finding that enraged uh, the families at the time. Now, this is how many of us will have remembered hearing the news on that dreadful, dreadful day. It's been a black day for football. On a sunny afternoon at Hillsborough, Sheffield, no fewer than 93 football supporters died in the most tragic accident for the sport ever in this country. And it becomes the sad duty tonight for those of us normally concerned with the lighter side of television reporting to deal with a sombre subject. Okay, as you can imagine, huge relief for uh, the families uh, after that uh, inquiry's decision today or that inquest uh, decision today. This is how they reacted to the news outside uh, the, uh, the the courthouse in uh, in the in England today. Yes, yeah, singing the uh, the Liverpool anthem, uh, you'll never walk alone there. Now, a little earlier, I spoke to the editor of the Liverpool Echo, Alistair McRae. I began by asking him for the reaction on Merseyside to the verdict today. I think, first and foremost, relief. Uh, I think it was a very, very anxious few days. And, you know, last night, you know, people are talking about not sleeping at all. And to get the, the absolutely overwhelming verdict we wanted uh, led to relief. And I think now that we're past that stage, there's a degree of anger, Shane, that it's taken 27 years to get to this point. Um, and people, the families, are, are naturally saying, right, then now it's time to focus on why it's taken 27 years. And the reason was institutionalized cover-up. The reason was an institutionalized disregard for the truth. And the reason was an institutionalised disregard for, quotes, ordinary people, close quotes. Now, there are many, many examples of all those three things um, that the families have at their disposal. And, of course, behind the scenes during the inquest period, there's been Operation Resolve, a, a police investigation into what happened leading up to Hillsborough and to what happened on the day. And independent police 
Complaints Commission investigation into the cover-up where it's at afterwards. And all those things we will now watch to see if they are brought to fruition. The police operation resolve team warned that it could be as far away as eight months. But I imagine that the families will bring pressure to bear for there to be prosecutions from this point. Does today's verdict once and for all remove the stain that was placed on the Liverpool fans that day and placed on the Liverpool fans, we know at this stage, by briefings, by inaccurate uh, and and willfully inaccurate uh, briefings given to the media, given to politicians in the, the wake of the disaster and the tragedy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The stain is removed once and for all, as you put it. Um, yeah, I think there are many heroes in this story you know the, the families being preeminent amongst those heroes but there are many heinous villains too you talk about the sort of willful briefings and um, other people have talked about black propaganda and things like that and there is much evidence of that you know you, you begin with Irvin Patrick the Sheffield MP who briefed um, opinion makers and a news agency that tanked up a bunch of Liverpool fans was responsible for the whole thing. Now, he was knighted, Patrick, and, and, and then further down the line admitted that it was wholly inaccurate. The evidence he'd given, the briefing he'd given was wholly inaccurate. That is shameful. You know, to stain people like that is shameful. But he wasn't alone. You know, you, you look at Stephen Popper, the coroner at the first inquest, who sort of blithely said, um, oh, 3.15 is the cutoff. Everyone was fatally injured by then. So therefore, there's no need to consider the role of the emergency services in this. Now, of course, emergency services, the police response teams, were absolutely held up as being uh, failures with today's verdict. So, you now that, again, more evidence of institutionalised cover-up. And on and on it went. Requests for new inquests dismissed as not in the interests of justice. Witness statements changed. Key witnesses not called to inquiries or to inquests. Time after time after time, the families and the people of Liverpool were betrayed. They deserve this moment today. Alistair, just explain to us and it, I mean, the answer is obvious in some way, but I, I, I'm, just do explain to us why it was so important for the families who, who lost their loved ones in such unspeakable circumstances, why it was so important that their death be considered unlawful as opposed to accidental, which I, I think I'm right in saying the original inquest said it was accidental death. Wh- why was it so important to them that that, that that record be put straight? The family have always said that they're first and foremost that they wanted the right thing on the death certificates, which turned out to be unlawful killing. If you ask me why they, they, they were so determined not to let accidental death stand, you know, because that sort of gave um, some degree of credence to the idea put about by people like Margaret Thatcher's own press secretary that a tanked up mob of Liverpool fans had been responsible for the disaster, something that idiot is still saying today. 
this very day. And then that sort of propaganda put about by someone like Home Secretary Douglas Hurd, who blithely said in the Commons that 19 police officers were physically assaulted. Well, actually, not one police officer to this day has backed up that claim. Complete and utter nonsense. And that sort of stain that was left by the Sun newspaper, who talked about Liverpool fans stealing wallets from dead bodies of fellow fans, of urinating on fellow fans, of attacking emergency service workers, all absolute lies. So little wonder the families have fought so long to remove that kind of untruth from the records of the people they lost. Just reading again today um, uh, through the kind of evidence that that came out. I mean, look, I I know none of this will be new to to you or news to you or news to obviously the relatives of the 96 uh, who lost their lives. They will have known this for many years. But I suppose uh, while I'm sure it's a huge relief, the verdict in Liverpool, the heartbreaking thing for me reading through again is is how avoidable it all could have been from going back to the very point the 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 replacement of the normal officer who presided uh, over games at Hillsmere being replaced by a man who we now know was not up to the job and didn't have the experience to a variety of decisions he didn't make like the failure to close the the the, the tunnel into the Lepping Lane end and then the the slow slow reaction of emergency services that must still break the hearts of families to this very day. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, those families, most of them, many of them, have sat through you know, two years of evidence. They've had to relive it, you know, again and again and again. And their stories are stories of heartbreak, not just at the time, but since since having been let down. You know, and, and family members waiting for justice who died in the 27 years between the Hillsborough disaster day and this actual day of exoneration. It's been an you know, appalling story. As you say, a catalogue of people not doing their job properly. And then this appalling you know, almost coordinated attempt to blame the people of Liverpool, to blame the Liverpool fans. And you can sort of see it in in an insidious way as well as an overt way. People thinking, well, they're from Liverpool, you know, it must have been their fault. You know, football fans, oh, they would have been drunk, but, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then sort of spinning this narrative that they try to create as reality. And I think what their mistakes were that they thought that they could close ranks and make a mockery of ordinary people. What they got wrong was imagining they were dealing with ordinary people. They weren't. The Hillsborough families were not ordinary people, nor was Liverpool an ordinary city. Just a couple of questions before we let you go. The the South Yorkshire police, I mean, the, the inquest... I mean, they, I suppose, do come out of this as the, the villains of the piece, if, if that's the right term to use in, in this context. But just their, their inadequacy in dealing with this, the culture in the police force at the time, the, 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 ironically, the heavy drinking uh, culture in, in, in that police force at the time, which is ironic given the kind of uh, mistruths that they were spreading after, after the, 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 the game. Um, and then, of course, as we've spoken about, their attempts to, to cover up what actually happened. I think you're measured and gracious in using the phrase at the time. I think what has angered the family significantly is that even at the very end of two years of inquests, 
25, 27 years after the event, South Yorkshire Police representatives and South Yorkshire Police staff and South Yorkshire Police former staff were still trying to spin the narrative that it wasn't their fault. So it's fine for the chief constable to come out this afternoon after the verdict and issue an unreserved apology. That's empty. If his apology is unreserved, then why were so many advocates for South Yorkshire Police uh, allowed to contest every single shred of evidence against them at the inquest? Why did they not just hold their hands up early in the process and say, hey, we're going to apologise now, we behaved appallingly. I'm not sure that at the time lets them away with it. I think a culture of Teflon non-stick blame is still prevalent in that police force. Okay. Um, Two last very quick questions. I know there was lots of hugely emotional moments throughout this uh, throughout this inquest and, and, and you know, families giving evidence and, and even one or two of, of the policemen I know um, uh, who, who came out of it very well saying look they did they did their best in, in appalling circumstances and um, but I, I presume the key moment was in that all that evidence was when under cross-examination um, David Duckenfeld's admitted that he had frozen at the key at the key moment when he should have made the decision to to close the tunnel was that for you the the, the key turning point in this battle for justice I, I, i'm not sure there was a turning point i felt from day one reading the evidence that you know it was an overwhelming tide of vindication for the way the liberal fans had, had behaved mm and an overwhelming tide of condemnation for the way that various people, Duck and Field, perhaps most of all, had failed to do their job. Um, I think if this has taught me one thing, and you know, it's, it's, it's something I think I'll go back and tell my kids tonight, if you fouled up in spectacular circumstances, the very, very best, thing, most honest thing, most decent thing you can do is to say immediately, look, I've got it wrong. Yeah. I've done something appalling. Mm. Please forgive me. Even if you can't, please know that I'm contrite. Yeah. It's taken 27 years. I'm not sure we're there. Last question uh, before I let you go. Uh, prosecutions, that is the next step in uh, following uh, today's historic verdict. Potentially. I mean, Operation Resolve, which is the police operation looking into the, what, what happened leading up to it, and then there's the IPCC investigation into the likelihood of there being a cover-up afterwards. Um, you know, they still have work to do. So, you know, I think, you know, people will want something to happen very quickly. I'm not sure it will. I think it will be many months. But the pressure on Operation Resolve and the pressure on the IPCC to now go ahead and prosecute people who got it wrong, but then spent the next 27 years denying they got it wrong and watching families suffer in that interim, the pressure to prosecute them will be intense. Alison McRae, editor of the Liverpool Echo, thanks indeed for talking to us this afternoon. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. 
Okay, now today marks three decades since the Chernobyl nuclear disaster when a fire and explosion at one of Chernobyl's reactors spewed radioactive material into the atmosphere. Locals in the Ukraine and Belarus spent days in areas they should either have been evacuated from or they were eating, of course, unknowingly consumed food tainted by the fallout. The exact toll from the disaster still remains hard to pin down. Joining us on the line now, though, is Anna Gabriel, who was born in Belarus in the years after after the disaster, before being adopted by an Irish family when she was three and has been living here ever since. Anna, you're very welcome to the programme. Hi Shane, thank you very much, a pleasure to be on. Oh, good to have you. Now listen, you were you were born some years after the, the Chernobyl disaster, but it had a profound effect on your life. Tell us a little bit about your story. Okay, well I was born on the 23rd of June 1992, so that was the after effect of the Chernobyl which happened today, 30 years ago. So there was definitely a gap of eight years and I was born with um, hearing difficulties, one kidney and six fingers on each hand and as well as um, um, had legs um, deformed as well. So um, that was definitely eight years, so that affected me completely. Um, so then what happened then was I was put into an, an orphanage number one home and I was there um, right to the age of three and a half and Aidy Roach and her um, children international, they um, brought me out of the orphanage and brought me to Ireland to Shannon Airport on the 6th of January 1996 where I met the, my family, the Gabriel family on that wintry morning and I've never left since, basically. So the Gabriel family be- be- became your, your family. Tell, tell us a little bit about them. Well, my family. So, um, Shane, I have three sisters and I have, um, as, as well as my parents. So I'm actually the middle, um, I'm in the middle. So I've um, one younger and two older. So like that now, when I came over, um, like that now, like I'm very close to my family, um, very close to my sisters. Of course, I have my difference um, when we do fight, but other than that, we're very close. They don't treat me any different to any other sister. Like they don't treat me as I'm the adopted one. In fact, here in Bandon in town, or whoever meets us, or whoever meets us, including our friends or people in town, that they actually come up to us and say, "Oh." Like, you know, you're the adopted one. You don't look adopted at all. You look, you just look like the Gaper families. Uh, yeah, you look, uh, obviously uh, you have the, the love of a, of a, of a caring uh, family and, and that's, that can never be, be underestimated and, and, and fantastic. And you can hear that in, in the way you speak about them. I suppose the other major impact on your life in terms of coming here was that you had access to treatment and facilities, health facilities that you would not have had in your home country. Well, that is correct, um, because as you know, with the Chernobyl disaster, they wouldn't have the same um, treatment as we have here. So when I first came over here, um, the first thing that they've done to me was checking out my hearing, hearing, as in, like, you know, I, I, I was born deaf, so that was the first thing they did. So they actually, we went on a few hearing aid appointments, and I was able to get um, a hearing aid bone conductor, which allows me to hear everything to this day. So, like that now, because I was able to hear, I was able to get um, a speech therapy, and I was able to learn English from scratch, as I didn't have any language because I was deaf when I was in Belarus, so I only picked up like baby words, as like you know, like mama, dada, or or anything like that. So I had no language when I was over in Belarus, but when I came over to Ireland, I was able to 
here and I was able to get, pick up a language. And um, not only that, I was able, because my legs were deformed as well, I was able, there was a few, there was loads of doctor's appointments in between. And what we came up with as a solution is to get two artificial legs. So I got that when I was 13 and I've been wearing them ever since. So like that now, like, you know, it's absolutely tremendous and that I'll be able to hear and I'm able to walk as much as, as far as I can. I can, I'm actually looking at people face to face, eye to eye, um, because without the artificial legs or the prosthesis legs, as they call them, um, I'm actually very small. I'm only about three, three, one, but like with the legs, I'm about five, one. So it's dramatically helped and I'm able to stand on my two own feet. And if you come across anyone that, you know, I'm definitely um, a very independent woman and that's the way I was, that's the way I want to be. You yeah. have, you've spoken about your, about, about meeting your birth mother and you've spoken very warmly about her as well. I did. Um, well, you see, what happened, Jane, was um, I when, I when I first came over, we had no information whatsoever on my birth family. And, you know, that was it. You know, that was the way it was. And then just after I turned 21, um, I just, I actually, before I turned 21, I actually said, look, I'll just track down my family, even just to know if they're alive. And I'd be just happy with that. And it actually turns out that my both parents were very much alive and that I was able to get to meet my birth mom. Um, she came over from Ireland for a week and I got to meet her. And even in saying that now, the very first time that I met her, like, you know, it wasn't strangely weird, but it was very emotional one because, like, you know, it was the first time this, this was the mother who, this was the mother who gave birth to me. And, you know, she knew, she knew me, obviously, because she gave birth to me. And like that now, she just didn't know what to do. She just didn't know but like she she looked very sad but she looked happy at the same time and like she know like because on their end they were told that I was dead as well. So like it was absolutely traumatic for both of us to hear that we were both very much alive. So when I saw her and she, like that now she just stood right in front of me. She didn't know what to say or what to do but she started crying and I just couldn't help but put my arms around her and just say, Look, it's all right. You had to do what you had to do. I don't blame you. And I so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Ali Houston. I mean, not too many people with a with as famous a godmother as you have. <laughs> well, that's true, actually. Um, so no, with Ali, like she's absolutely amazing woman. Like, like from the very moment that she, the minute she holds my arms, like in the offer late number one home. Of course, I can't remember that. But to this day, like even like I was at the late late show there now on Friday night, and I was spending some quality time with Ali, and she's exactly the same person that who I known for the last twenty years, and she's just a remarkable woman. And like you know, she never forgets me, regardless of her busy schedule. She never forgets me. And like that now, like Aidy Roach as well. Like you know, I know she's not my godmother, but she's she might she's like my fairy godmother. So like them two women are absolutely inspirational to me, and like they don't realise how much they've touched my heart. And it's really we have a strong bond between all three of us. And you know, it's, they're absolutely remarkable, and I can't speak highly enough of them. And you know, it's like it's just. Life, just to conclude, life life is good for exactly. Anna Gabriel. Life is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm working full time now with the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation. I'm still living at home with my family, and you know I couldn't have it any other way. I love them two bits, and um, I'm I'm still a, I'm doing my final exams in the accounting technician at the moment in CIT. So 
I have everything going for me and it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened if I wasn't put on that plane by A Roach and as well as the help of the Chernobyl Children International because if it wasn't for them I wouldn't know where I'd be. I just wouldn't have what I have now. So I definitely can't say that what my life would have been because and even if I did, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, Anna, you're an extraordinary young woman, uh, an inspirational story. Thanks so much for, for sharing it with us today. Okay, yeah, I spoke with Anna just a little bit before uh, coming on air. Now, we're going to stay with this story. Uh, 30 years ago today, the Chernobyl fire happened. One man who has spent time in the region in recent times is the author and Sunday Times journalist, uh, John Carlin. Uh, John, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, tell us, you've been back there. You've been to, to, to Pripyat and the, the, the wider area. What is it like today? I presume it's something of a wasteland, is it? Well, it's um, it's quite the most um, remarkable, certainly macabre place I've ever been to. Just so so eerie. Um, I was staying in 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 a place in a in a town, a pretty poor town, about um, an hour and a half drive south of Chernobyl itself. And then to get there, you have to go through these military checkpoints. So basically, the sort of Chernobyl region is like a it's like a state within a state. You need to have all sort of papers to get in. And there's there's two things that that I guess caught my eye. One um, is this extraordinary giant sarcophagus or sort of coffin that looks like an enormous aircraft hangar that they're building alongside the nuclear reactor that that blew up, with a view to then pushing it along to cover um, this nuclear reactor, which is still sizzling away, which is still live, and people still not sure exactly what mayhem could still nuclear mayhem may come out of that radioactive mayhem and so it's this extraordinary construction which is um taller than the statue of liberty twice as heavy as the eiffel tower so that's an amazing thing to see um and then but even more startling the thing that really was the the, the truly amazing thing was was this town which is about um two or three kilometers away from the nuclear reactor called pripyat um, Pripyat was this town that was the pride and joy of Ukraine, of the Soviet Union, for that matter, um, until the nuclear explosion. And about 40,000 people lived there. It was a kind of model Soviet town um, with all kinds of amenities and cinemas and theaters and football stadiums and tall buildings, residential buildings. And I went down the places absolutely empty. It's this ghost town. It's like a you know, like like a kind of lost city, lost Mayan city somewhere in the Guatemalan jungle, but it happens to be in Ukraine in, in the forest with, with the trees have grown so much that they're actually taller than some of the seven or eight story buildings. And just this, this gigantic ghost ghost city that has been uninhabited for for thirty years because it was evacuated of all its people the very day after the nuclear explosion. Uh, there are some people, even though it isn't, it, there's an exclusion zone in operation. There are some people who are living there. I was very taken in the piece you wrote uh, for the Sunday Times by the, the story of it. Um, I think she's in her uh, late eighties, uh, Alla Ivan Ivanova. Yes, amazing. Gosh, um, yes. Well, the thing is, in this you know exclusion zone, um, so-called, there's there's a whole there's loads and loads of empty farmsteads, and there's other towns apart from this main one I'm describing called uh, Pripyat next to Chernobyl itself, um, a town called Poliska, where about um, 23,000 people used to live. And um, 
and everybody was evacuated um, some years actually only after the um, the explosion, um, except for about twenty who just doggedly, absolutely refused to stay, to, to leave rather. Uh, of those twenty, only three um, are still alive, and one of them is this lady. Um, Ivan Ivna that I that I saw, who's I think actually was 84 years old, and she lives in this otherwise absolute ghost town um, on her own. Um, and we're talking, you know, great poverty and poverty in extreme cold. As I said in the, the article I wrote for the for the Sunday Times, you know, I I know Africa very well. I've seen a lot of poverty in my life. But one thing is poverty where it's hot. Another thing is poverty where it's damn cold, where there's mm. snow. And this little old lady lives there on her own, and she told me that she just absolutely refused. They actually tried to get her out at gunpoint, and she said, you'd have to shoot me first. Uh, this is home, and this is where I'm staying. And, and she lives there. Someone once, once a month, someone comes along and brings her, brings her some food supplies. And, uh, and the funny thing is that she's had an incredible life, this lady. I mean, she's been through, you know, Ukraine is one of the most harrowing countries in terms of its history of, in, in the world. You know, she went, they had this appalling famine where 3.3 million people died, in the 30s, that's when she was a little tiny girl. There was in the Second World War, they were occupied by the Nazis. Then there was the Stalin repression. Then there was Chernobyl. And now there she is. And yet, there she is in her solitude, the sweetest-natured old lady you could ever hope to find, just this delightful, chatty, smiley lady living a life of absolute solitude in the most sort of dire place um, imaginable. Thirty years since Chernobyl happened, we're we're probably not a lot wiser at this point as to how many people, how many deaths were caused. Let me put it that way by by Chernobyl. I mean the yeah. the the official the uh, the the World Health Organization concluded four thousand people will will die as a result of Chernobyl. Uh, it it seems quite a conservative estimate. Yeah, well, the general figure, there was this United Nations study that said that the number of deaths directly mm. linked to the disaster itself, in other words, including you know, the unbelievably heroic firemen who went in there to battle the blaze and you know, just after it happened, but that figure stands at 49. And they say they've estimated that the number of died as a consequence of the radioactivity, and for example, through thyroid cancer, which is apparently one of the things that is caused by all this radioactivity in the air and in the earth. Um, they say the number there is about four thousand. Um, it's it's you know it's obviously you know I'm not a medical man. I, I I'm but a journalist who went and spent some time there and talked to a lot of people. Um, but one of the people I spoke to was a lady who heads up a hospital in this town that's just outside the Chernobyl exclusion zone, and uh, she was a you know a far from hysterical person. She was a very very sober, rather Im- impressive, um, forthright lady um, who said that her fear. Um, is actually for the next generation. Her fear is for people who are, I don't know, maybe in their 20s now who will soon be having children. Those children, the next generation of babies to be born, because there's just so little real sort of hard scientific knowledge about the effects of all this radiation um, on the sort of you know genetic evolution and, and, and the mutations that go on inside the body. So there's a whole, there's an element of suspense in that area, um, about what the impact will be on you know the next batch of human beings that are born in that area. 
Okay, fascinating stuff. We'll have to leave it there. Author and uh, Sunday Times journalist uh, John Carlin, thanks indeed uh, for talking to us today and I suppose taking us inside the Chernobyl reason and, and that city, the lost city, as John described it, of uh, Pripyat. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. Okay, I want to turn now to something completely different. The O'Higgins Commission of Inquiry into the uh, handling of whistleblower Sergeant McCabe and, and the allegations or the uh, the revelations uh, he made has been uh, completed. Uh, Mick Clifford, special investigator or special correspondent rather with the Irish Examiner, uh, joins us now to talk about it. Uh, Mick, thanks indeed for joining us. Um, what do we know at this stage about what is in this report? The report went to the Department of Justice and the Minister yesterday. It was discussed at Cabinet today. As I understand it, um, it was referred to the Attorney General just in case there's any legal issues around it that might interfere with any pending court cases. But um, as I understand it, that's unlikely and will probably be published once the uh, Attorney General gives it the OK. Just very briefly, uh, because people, I mean, there's been so many kind of reports and inquiries over the last two years uh, in relation, I, I suppose specifically in relation to Angarda Shikona. Just remind us as well uh, about the, uh, I suppose, about what Sergeant McCabe was saying. Yeah, Sergeant McCabe had a dossier um, uh, that involved about 12 different cases in the Cavan Monaghan district, which he alleged involved malpractice and very bad police work. Um, at the height of the number of different controversies, he gave this dossier to Michal Martin, who brought it into the Dáil. There was a scoping inquiry set up by the government under Senior Counsel Sean Geeran. That came to the conclusion there should be a full commission of investigation, which was chaired by former High Court Judge Kevin O'Higgins. Now, you may recall that when Sean Geeran published his report, um, Enda Kenny, I think, gave Alan Shatter three hours to read it and effectively resign because there was some criticism of him. And I must say, in terms of everything that was going on, it was relatively mild criticism, but it was very much a political decision on Mr. Kenny's part. And Alan Shatter resigned as Minister for Justice. The report was set up soon after, and that has now been completed. I mean, I should point out that there was it, there, on News Talk and other stations this morning, I think there was a version of a report uh, put out that suggested that Sergeant Mc, that there wasn't that much praise for Sergeant McCabe in it, and that he, I think it was say, stated that he withdrew a lot of the allegations. I don't think that's the same report that was sent to the Department of Justice because... Um, what, what's your understanding, Mick, of what the report says about that dossier presented by uh, Sergeant McCabe? My understanding is that it more or less um, vindicates and backs up Sergeant McCabe in practically all of the allegations he made about those cases of malpractice. Um, I, as I understand it, the judge is highly praiseworthy of Sergeant McCabe, saying he did a public service. Um, he also notably says that, as far as he's concerned, Alan Shatter didn't do anything wrong, and neither did Martin Callan, and both of whom were caught up in it. Um, I think the judge says that both of them relied on reports from other people to make the decisions they made. So that would be at some variance from the Gearin report. And um, Alan Shatter has been hinting, I think, in public for a while that he would be exonerated here. And I think to a large extent he has been. But again, 
people could get confused and say that he had to go as a result of what was in Gearan. But I think that was very much a political decision and that uh, Enda Kenny had reached the end of his feather with all of the uh, Garda allegations uh, or the controversies around it. And that was ultimately what did for Mr. Shatter. If, for example, Gearn had been published and there had been no controversies and Mr. Shatter hadn't been in the midst of a number of controversies prior to that, uh, there was plenty of cover there for Enda Kenny to say, mm. hand it over to a commission and we'll see what they say. Uh, in relation to Sergeant McCabe, this report then pretty much bears out what he said. It it upholds the suggestions, the allegations, the claims he makes in that dossier about malpractice. Yes, it does. Now, there, there are a few caveats. I mean, I think there's a, an issue over phraseology over what Sergeant McCabe has termed corruption and the judge's interpretation of that. But in terms of the malpractice, uh, I think there may be one out of the 12 where he doesn't actually uphold the complaint, but he still maintains there was a poor performance there in terms of what the public might expect from the Gardaí. But otherwise, it does largely uh, vindicate him. Um, now, you mentioned Alan Shatter um, having to resign. The other, of course, high-profile casualty of this was the then Garda Commissioner, Martin Callan. Um, does the report speak much about his role? Does it, uh, does it make any comment in relation to Martin Callan? As I understand it, it says that he relied on... These complaints were initially investigated by an internal investigation chain. And as I understand it, the report says that Martin Callan relied on the results of that not to carry out anything further beyond that, and therefore he, he was effectively covered in that regard. He didn't do anything wrong, so to speak. But, I mean, it should be pointed out that in terms of Mr. Shatter, whereas he did nothing wrong, it would have been open to him to get an external body to investigate these, but he um, he gave it back to the Gardaí. But, it has to be said, there was nothing wrong as such in that, and uh, that would be a, a bit of a variance between this and what um, Mr. Gearn came up with. But as regards the main thrust of the allegations, I think it certainly will show that there was serious malpractice in the Cavan Monaghan area out of the Baileyborough district, um, which would immediately, you know, arise. The question that arises out of that is that was this confined to Dare and it was just a coincidence that there was a sergeant willing to complain about it, or is this type of stuff more widespread? Okay, where does it leave? Where does it leave Sergeant McCabe, and where does it leave the Gardaí, uh, Mick? Because I suppose it would be a concern that the Commissioner Macquarie will come out. There'll be lots of chest beating about it in the doll. There'll be calls for various reforms and changes, and, and I suppose some of those have already happened. But ultimately, will it will it change anything? Do you believe? Very hard to know, Shane. I mean, out of this, we saw, for example, the setting up of the policing authority, which had its first public meeting yesterday. Uh, this was brought in largely because it was felt after the controversies that there should be a buffer between the police and politics, um, and their function would be to oversee the operation of the Gardaí. Now, yesterday wouldn't fill anybody with confidence, but I suppose to be fair to the authority, they're just getting into their stride. But I think the bigger issue is a cultural one, and that is whether the Gardaí can have a more transparent culture, a more outward-looking culture, and a lot of the issues that arose here were as a result of that culture. There can be instances where a junior Garda, for instance, isn't up to the job or he makes a mistake, but the big problem is what happens after that. Is there effectively a cover-up, or is there a process whereby that is dealt with in a way that it won't be repeated again? Mm. And 
I think the jury's still out as to whether yeah. that culture has changed despite all the soundings we've had over the last 18 months or so. Mm, very much so. One very final question, very briefly, uh, Mick. Is there anything in this, bearing in mind what you were saying about um, about Alan Shatter, that he will feel this report uh, exonerates him? Any potentially politically tricky issues maybe for uh, Enda Kenny uh, arising out of this? I, d- I don't think so. I mean, like, Alan Shatter did nothing wrong. Um, Enda Kenny, it would strike me, wanted rid of him for political reasons and, and for reasons that politically Mr. Shatter hadn't handled the issues in an adroit manner that one would have expected of, of an experienced politician. So that's Enda Kenny's judgment. Now, I, I've said it before, if Gearn had come out and said that Alan Shatter wore the wrong colour tie going into the doll, it nearly would have been enough for Enda Kenny at that stage. You got the impression he was so frustrated to ask him to go. So whether there's any um, comeback on him as a result of getting Mr. Shatter to resign, I, I'd say, to be honest with you, he's far bigger fish to fry at the moment. True enough. Um, just do, do we know when that report is going to be published? Well, uh, on the assumption that there are no major issues with the Attorney General, I can't imagine why it wouldn't be sometime in the next couple of days. Okay, we we'll leave it there. Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner, thanks indeed for joining us. The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two ton towing capacity, and legendary four wheel drive technology. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. Tonight now is another key night in the race for the White House, with five states casting their votes in the contest for presidential nominations. Delaware, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maryland and Pennsylvania head to the polls. Uh, We're joined on the line now to discuss these primaries by uh, Gina London, International Communications Consultant and Emmy Award winning veteran, CNN correspondent and anchor. Uh, Gina, thanks uh, for talking to us today. Um, Let's start with the Democrats first. I mean, it's, it's kind of all over bar the shouting. Is there a good chance that the shouting might end tonight as well? Could this bring an end to Bernie Sanders' campaign? I wouldn't bet on it. It might be the end to the battle, but I don't think it's the end of his revolution. Even if he gets hammered today, Shane, in those five northeast states that you just mentioned, some would argue that he should stay in and keep Hillary in fighting shape for what they're saying should be a battle royale with Trump coming up in the general. So I wouldn't say it's all over, although I do agree with you that Clinton is absolutely in her best position yet after her routing victory up in New York last week. She only needs about 41% of each of the remaining states to clinch the nomination, and Bernie would have to take about 58 in each one to, to get a majority. But again, I think he may have lost the battle, but we still have a lot of influence that he could wield coming up into the convention and then on into the general. Does it make sense for him personally to continue the battle? Is there, uh, interesting, uh, the, after the New York, the New York uh, defeat, Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. talking about how we have more in common than we have. I mean, is there, is there a job down the line or is, is that too cynical to talk in those terms? For, no, for, in terms no, not at all. I mean, if you look back to when Obama and Hillary were going at it, that Hillary stayed in just long enough to wield enough influence for her to ultimately get her Secretary of State position. And I think there's some talk out there that Bernie could also be trying to position himself to get maybe a, maybe a Secretary of Labor, some sort of a job in the cabinet with President Clinton that could possibly help him moving forward his agenda. So you think, regardless of what happens tonight, Bernie Sanders, I think it's 7th of June, isn't it, that the final primaries, New Jersey, California, uh, do you think he'll still be in in the race at that point? I'm I'm not a betting woman. I've never been over to, uh, you know, Patty's to place a bet, but I will think that he will stay in it, if only because 
he wants to be able to see what type of numbers he can get as it moves into the convention, and that way he can have a real role in a convention in, in Philadelphia in July. So, yeah, I think he will. But realistically, I mean, we are talking about Hillary Clinton being it's the Hillary Democrat. Clinton. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no math that can make it happen. I mean, the numbers are telling us one thing, and that's the clear who the winner who's going to win. But it doesn't tell us how the races will end. And by that, by that is what I'm alluding to with the influence wielding and what can happen as it positions into the cabinet and to the agenda that may be set in policy in the first hundred days of the White House after the general. Okay, let's talk about the GOP. Um, let's talk about it. <laughs> it's always the thing to talk about. It is. It is. Trump marches on. Um, is is he is he likely to to do well in these five um, in these five states? Yeah, the polling has him as high, if not higher, than what he did in New York. And, and the total delegate count in those states that you named in, in today's primary is 172. So he still, even if he took what he won't do, if he took 100% of all the delegates, he still wouldn't get that magic number. He's got 845 in the delegate count right now, and he needs 1237 is that magic number you keep hearing about, mm-hmm. but which would make him a shoe-in to clinch the nomination in the Cleveland, in the GOP convention in Cleveland in the end of July. But so even if he got all 172, the math wouldn't be there. But what's going to happen now is, even if he did over 60% like he did in New York, because of the different ways that they, the Republicans divvy up their delegates, he's still going to be shy of that number. And I think a lot of the, the focus now is what's going to happen with the Trumpists, the never-Trumpists. What are they doing? The people that are really against him, do they do everything they can? Like you heard about Cruz and Kasich trying to put their forces together and staying clear of, the, of some of the, the, the primaries that are coming up in the next round. And what the, on May 3rd, for example, in Indiana, you've only got one of them that's campaigning so they can try to pump up those numbers and get it closer so that they can have a contested election in, in Cleveland in, the, in July. And there's some that say that they, are the Never Trump is going to do everything they can to destroy him before he destroys the party. There's a real concern there. Or maybe are we at the point where the GOP establishment just reconciles it to the fact that it's to blame for allowing Trump to reach this point? And and maybe they're going to take some sort of comfort in seeing what they saw last week when Trump gave his victory speech. It was the shortest speech he's given, really, to date. It was about eight minutes long. And they're... The, his campaign manager, he heard, he came out last week and said that Trump's trying to be more presidential. You're going to see his part being played differently. And if it does mean that he'll be using as few words as possible, and I guess that says that saying little for Trump is the best way he can avoid insulting anyone. Lots of sort of conspiracy theories being hatched about what the leadership of the Republican Party might do to, to thwart uh, Donald Trump. But I just wonder how realistic is it? If he is comfortably ahead, even if he doesn't make it to uh, 1,237, that magic number, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to look fundamentally undemocratic if they come up with some kind of ruse to to shaft him. And I presume there's a very real likelihood he would vote or he would stand as as an independent candidate splitting the the Republican vote. I mean, it would strike me that perhaps the least worst option, to put it that way, would be just to to suck it up and, uh, and have him as their candidate. Well, you know, you've hit it on the head, Shane, because if they if, if they do the two different ways that you met, if he runs as an independent, then he steals away his base. If for some reason that that scenario plays out, then they pretty much hand the next four years over to Hillary Clinton, done deal. If he does become the nominee and they suck it up, and as Reince Primus, the, the chair of the, the, the Republican Party, has said, he'll support the nominee no matter who it is. So the establishment will go with him if he can make 
that first round balloting. If he can't make the first round of balloting, and by the rules that are set out so far, it goes this way at a convention. If the first round of balloting and you have a candidate who can get 51%, if he can get a, a majority of votes in eight states, then he's secured the nominee. If he doesn't, then it can go into a second and a third balloting, and that's when that delegate wrangling, that horse trading happens on the floor of the convention. So there's still some, what you would might call some legal wrangling that they could do, short of just finding some backroom deal like you were alluding to, of denying him the convention nomination. But if it smacks at anything less than, hey, fair play, then absolutely he could walk. And as you said, he might run as a third party. He might not run at all, but still keep his base away from turning out to the polls. Hard to say, but I certainly wish there were some way that I could get over to Cleveland in July and be a fly on that wall, because hmm. it could be historic. Um, so 80%, sorry, 100% certain that it will be Hillary Clinton. Is it kind of, what, 80 90% certain that it'll be Donald Trump? But, you know, there's only, as you said, there's five, there's five today. And then there's 10 left. So we've only got 15 more states. And you've got California is one of the last ones to go, as you mentioned, on June 7th. And they've got 172 delegates. If there's some way, and I'm no mathematician when it comes to this, but if there's some way that Cruz or Kasich can come close enough that they could potentially receive a second-round ballot or even that white knight scenario of a third-round ballot – I wouldn't even. I wouldn't quite say it's eighty percent yet. I don't think that there's a bunch of guys smoking cigars in some back room wheeling and dealing. But I think there's a lot of talk and a lot of people who are better at crunching numbers than I am, trying to figure out how they get to just shy enough that it makes sense from a logistic from a logistic point of view that they can go into the contested balloting that would take place at the convention. Even if Trump's close, it's going to look like a, st- a stolen convention if he doesn't get it mm. because it's going to look like bad blood so they're yeah. going to really have to make sure that he's got distance enough and so we'll see what happens today on those five northeastern states and then in the next couple of weeks until the end of june 7th almost over final question and we're, we're, we're just out of time if it is clinton versus trump everyone's saying oh it's a done deal clinton or clinton will definitely win that but I, it's a new election and i think you'll see a different donald trump if in a, in a general election campaign well that's what campaign manager keeps saying, but, you know, we this is like telling someone you're going to see a brand new person who you've seen on a public stage for decades. This guy is not going to suddenly change his spots no matter what teleprompter he's reading, no matter how short his speech is going. Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and you can't suddenly put a new mask on this guy. He is who he is. Okay, super stuff. Gina London, as ever, thanks indeed for joining us today. Gina London there, International Communications Consultant and Emmy Award winning veteran, CNN correspondent and anchor. Okay, that's our lot for today. I'll be back tomorrow at 4.30. Uh, just time for me to thank Peter Malloy, who is on sound. So the show was researched by Joe Coffey, Pader Brannock and Shane Hannan. And uh, the producer was John Farley. For myself, Shane Coleman, have a good evening. The Right Hook Podcast With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business The two-seater commercial SUV With over 2,000 litres of cargo space Two-ton towing capacity And legendary four-wheel drive technology MitsubishiMotors.ie